We're in uh, Luke chapter 4 today. We're going to look at verses 31 to 44, and we're talking about Jesus' power and authority. Jesus' power and authority. Luke chapter 4, beginning in verse 31. This is what Luke records for us. He says, Then Jesus went to Capernaum, a town in Galilee, and taught there in the synagogue every Sabbath. There, too, the people were amazed at his teaching, for he spoke with authority. Mark has a parallel account of this passage, and he adds that because he taught with authority and not like the scribes. It's a very interesting commentary there, How, and we'll talk about that more later. But Jesus taught with authority, unlike the scribes. Verse 33, once when he was in the synagogue, a man possessed by a demon, an evil spirit, cried out, shouting, go away, why are you interfering with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Notice the, uh, the switching back and forth between the plural and the singular. Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are. Some weird stuff going on there. <clears throat> but Jesus reprimanded him, saying, Be quiet and come out of the man. At that, the demon threw the man to the floor as the crowd watched and then came out of him without hurting him further. Amazed, the people exclaimed, what authority and power this man's words possess. Even evil spirits obey him, and they flee at his command. The news about Jesus spread through every village in the entire region. After leaving the synagogue that day, Jesus went to Simon's home, where he found Simon's mother-in-law very sick with a high fever. Please heal her, everybody begged. Standing at her bedside, he rebuked the fever, and it left her. And when she got up at once, she prepared a meal for them. And the sun went down that evening, or as the sun went down that evening, people throughout the village brought sick family members to Jesus. Mark adds that the whole town was literally gathered at their door. No matter what their diseases were, the touch of his hand healed every one. Many were possessed by demons, and the demons came out at his command, shouting, you are the Son of God. But because they knew that he was the Messiah, he rebuked them and refused to let them speak. Early the next morning, Jesus went out to an isolated place, and the crowd searched everywhere for him, and when they finally found him, they begged him not to leave them. But he replied, I must, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God in other towns as well, because this is why I was sent. So he continued to travel around, preaching in the synagogues throughout Judea. When Jesus left Nazareth, the Gospels tell us that he went to Capernaum and set up kind of his headquarters in Capernaum. If you go to Jerusalem today, to the town of Capernaum, uh, Peter's house is still there. There's actually a dome over it to preserve the remains underneath so that the sun doesn't kind of bake them and deteriorate them. And there's kind of a uh, a building above where there's a church that meets above the home where Peter was. And literally 50 yards to the north are the ruins of the synagogue, the very same synagogue in the story. So they're within a hop and a skip from each other. And you can see both of these today, the synagogue as well as Peter's house. Acts 10.38, I was reading this week, seems to perfectly describe the events that are taking place in our passage. Peter's preaching a sermon in Acts Chapter 10, and in verse 38, it says, he says to the people, and you know that God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit, 
which we just saw at Jesus' baptism in the Jordan River, and with power, which he's demonstrating now in all that he does. Then Jesus went out doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, and God was with him. So it's interesting. We're going to see all of this unfold this week, and I'm going to talk about how uh, some of the events are uh, arranged differently in the Gospels, but it's all for a literary purpose, and we'll talk about that. But there's really three main things that stand out to me in today's passage. And the first, if you're taking notes in your outline, is that Jesus demonstrates divine power and authority. Jesus demonstrates divine power and authority. The authority of God and his word is often so much more powerful than we give it credit for. I was reading this week, there's a book called The Genesis of Liberation. And this book, The Genesis of Liberation, explores the miracle of how, many, uh, of how so many African-American slaves came to faith in Christ despite the oppression that they experienced. For most of them, Jesus was the, the white man's savior, the white man's God, because slave owners used Jesus in the Bible to pacify slaves and to justify their enslavement. But miraculously, Many African Americans became Christians, and they attributed it to the authority of the Bible, to the authority of God's Word. And that's interesting when you read Scripture, because Jesus is the Word of God, the Word made flesh. And um, so you ask, how? How did, they, how did they come to faith in a God who they perceived to be the white man's God? Well, the answer that they discovered was that they fell in love with the God of Scripture, in Christ, they found salvation from their sins and reconciliation. In the Bible, they found not just an otherworldly God offering spiritual blessings, but a here and now God who cared deeply for the oppressed, acting to deliver the downtrodden from their abusers. And they also found Jesus, a suffering Savior, whose life and struggles paralleled their own struggles. So they found a God that they could identify with, not just an otherworldly, you know, pie-in-the-sky God, but a God who was involved in the here and now, and a God who was in the trenches, a God that cared deeply for human suffering and the human condition. And so they came to faith. And it's that very same authority and power of God that we see at work in Jesus as the Messiah as he reads that passage in Isaiah that we read last week that says, okay, I'm going to you know, help the blind to see and the deaf to hear and the lame to walk. It's like, then he goes out and starts doing that stuff as if to say, okay, see, I'm the Messiah. I'm proving that that passage was talking about me and I'm going to fulfill that. Well, as was Jesus's custom in verse 31, we find out here the text says that he went to the synagogue every Sabbath day and began to teach. And I just have to stop for a moment and comment on that because so many times it's hard for us maybe to go to church, you know? Maybe it's hard to go to church because you feel like, oh, I've heard it all before. Is anything going to be different? Is anything going to be new? Or from time to time, we don't like this or we don't like that, you know, we nitpick this, we nitpick that. Imagine being God in human flesh and in obedience, attending synagogue every week. Imagine how much 
Jesus found to criticize or to take issue with, especially when we read that so many of the religious leaders of the day did what they did with impure motives or ulterior motives. I mean, Jesus could have had a heyday critiquing or or offering excuses for why he didn't go to synagogue. But the text says, and the Gospels record, that he went uh, consistently every Sunday or every Saturday for them to synagogue and sat under the teaching or was involved in the teaching. And I think that speaks volumes as in terms of a model for us that, you know, if you're waiting until you find the perfect church or, or for things to go exactly how you want them to before you're a regular church attender, that day will never come. And Satan will always use that excuse in your life for, here's a good reason not to go. You know, the music stinks or the preaching's boring. It's so predictable. You know, it's always this or that or they always go long or whatever it is that we can focus in on. But we have a wonderful model here that Christ himself attended church consistently and regularly. And the people listened to him, like those in Nazareth, because they were amazed at his authority. Um, And the fact that he taught with authority, even though they didn't perceive him to be a rabbi. Here's a guy that they didn't perceive to be a rabbi because he didn't go up through the normal uh, schools and training, but yet he's teaching with more authority than even their rabbis taught with, or, or the scribes or the Pharisees. And that catches their attention, because the authority with which Jesus taught was something completely new to them. The majority of the rabbis would base their teaching on the chain of tradition that they called, citing the opinions of their predecessors. As they would teach, they would support every statement with quotations like, there is a saying that Rabbi so-and-so said such and such. And so everything that they said, they would document and support with quotations from previous rabbis that had established traditions and had said this or that. And so they would kind of base everything upon this delegated authority. They always appealed to authority. The prophets do the same thing. When you read the Old Testament, the prophets are always saying, thus saith the Lord. This is what God has said. And all of this is examples of delegated authority. And what was different about Jesus' teaching is when he taught, he said, I say to you. I mean, how many times are you reading the Gospels and Jesus says, you've heard it said, blah, 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 but I say to you. You know, you've heard it said that if a man commits adultery, he's guilty of death. A man or a woman. But I say to you, anyone that even looks upon another person with lust has already committed adultery in his heart. And so Jesus would always start with what they had been taught and what they knew, but his teaching was completely revolutionary and unique in that he would say, but I say to you, I say to you. And it was the difference between delegated authority and authority incarnate. The word made flesh. Real authority, living and breathing. And we see Jesus exercising this kind of authority and power throughout the Gospels. In Mark chapter 2, the paralytic is lowered through the roof uh, with the help of his friends. 
And Jesus basically says to him, your sins are forgiven, pick up your mat and go. And everyone's like, how can he do that? No one can forgive sins but God alone. You know, understanding that you and I can forgive people for their sins that they commit against us. We can say, that's all right, I forgive you. But we do not have the power to forgive sins in general. Only God can do that. Only God can erase that and blot that out and reconcile that. And Jesus is doing that. And so they, they say to him, who can forgive sins but God alone? And Jesus is like, exactly. You know. <laughs> but then he goes on to say, what's easier for me to say? Take up your pallet and walk or your sins are forgiven. Another place in the Gospels, Jesus calms the Sea of Galilee. And the disciples are freaking out because only Yahweh God had power over what they deemed to be the chaos of the sea, the wind and the waves. They even say that, who is this, that even the wind and the waves obey his word? Well, it's the same, same person that the Bible says was instrumental in creation, that God created the earth through Jesus. Well, Jesus also, when he stood on trial before Pilate and before the, the authorities, said that one day you will see the Son of Man, meaning him, returning, riding upon the clouds. Well, again, that was something that only Yahweh God did. As you read the Old Testament, only Yahweh God rode upon the clouds. And Jesus is saying, one day you will see me returning upon the clouds. Jesus is continually claiming power and authority that was reserved for God and God alone. He's continually making these divine claims. And in our passage, Jesus isn't pronouncing incantations and following these bizarre rituals. And there were a lot of them, you know, sprinkle this blood and this spice and dance around and chant this and do that, and maybe the demons will go out of a person. Jesus doesn't do any of these bizarre things. He simply commands the spirits, and they obey him. And people are going, whoa, there's no song or dance. There's no weird stuff going on. He just speaks with authority. And even the demonic spirits obey him. Well, Jesus, while he was speaking, verse 33 says that one such demon or group of demons, we don't really know, that was possessing this man spoke out in the service. And it's because the good news that Jesus preached really signaled an attack upon evil. And the demonic realm knew this. It was an all-out war. As Jesus came to bring the good news of the gospel, one of the first groups of people to recognize this was the whole demonic realm. Like, oh, no, it's a, it's a on out, full-on war now. He's coming to bring salvation. He's coming to bring deliverance. And we have the most to lose. So the demons go on the attack by disclosing their knowledge of Jesus' name, of where he's from, his hometown, of revealing his intention to destroy them, and his identity as the Holy One of God. Because the ancient belief was that if you disclosed or revealed someone's identity before they could talk, you had power over them. You controlled them. And so you might, you might ask, you know, why in the world are the demons, who we perceive at least to be against God and his purposes, why are they calling out who he is? 
Why are they doing his job for him? Why are they preaching to everyone in the synagogue? You're the Holy One of God. You're the Messiah. You know? Why have you come to destroy us? You know? What are your... They're doing this because they think that if they beat Jesus to the punch, they will have power over him. They will be able to subdue him. That he won't be able to cast them out. But in verse 35... Jesus tells the demon or the demons to basically shut up and be quiet and come out of the man, again proving that he has unparalleled power and authority. It's interesting because Mark's account of this very same passage, the demons come out yelling and screaming and squealing. But Luke has chosen to just talk about how they come out of the man and The physical manifestation is that they throw him to the floor and then they come out, but they don't harm him. And so Luke is is basically recording this as, as a silent event. There's no noise or screeching involved because Jesus says, shut up and come out. And so Luke is kind of saying that's exactly what they did, whereas Mark records that there was a lot of noise involved because he's going for a different point there. Well, this is Jesus' third miracle. The first miracle that Jesus performed, as you may remember, is turning water to wine at Cana of Galilee. And then the second miracle that he performed was healing the the centurion's servant. And the centurion was from Capernaum, and uh, the gospel accounts, the other gospels tell us that it was this, this official, this centurion official, who actually built the very synagogue that Jesus was preaching in here at Capernaum. And um, they're making an appeal to Jesus and the other Gospels that please heal the servant for the centurion because he's a very important man. He actually built our synagogue. Well, this um, centurion comes from uh, Capernaum where he's at to Galilee where Jesus is at the time Cana of Galilee, you know, he's turning water to wine and doing all this stuff, and he, he makes this appeal to Jesus, and Jesus says, he's, he's healed. Go back home and you'll find him healed. And so the centurion believes, and on his way home, he gets a report that, yeah, your servant's better now. And that's really the first example in the Gospels where Jesus is healing long distance. Like the person doesn't even have to be present and there, and Jesus is like, yeah, he's healed. Go home. You'll find him all right. And so this is the third miracle where he casts the demon out of this man in attendance. Later in Luke, we read about Jesus bestowing the same power and authority to his disciples. Luke chapter 9, verses 1 and 2, says that Jesus called the twelve together and gave them power and authority over the demons and to heal diseases. And he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to perform healing. In your study guide this week, you get to wrestle either individually or as a group whether, does that still apply to today? You know? I don't really read a verse in the Gospels that says, now don't do this anymore. Stop doing this. Jesus called the 12 together, his disciples, Christ followers, and entrusted unto them the power and authority to cast out demons in his name and to perform healing. And then he sent them out to do it. And the question is, should we still be doing that today? 
And part of the answer is that, yeah, we believe yes, and that's why we have the healing service that took place last Sunday night. That's why we do that once a month. Well, secondly, in our passage, not only does Jesus demonstrate divine power and authority, but I believe he proves that he's the Messiah. He proves that he's the Messiah. Last week, as I said in our teaching, Jesus read from the prophet Isaiah in chapter 61, and he stated his mission as Messiah. I have come to bind up the brokenhearted, to heal uh, the lame so that they can walk, the blind to see, the deaf to hear. And in our text this week, Jesus goes out and starts fulfilling the vision that he promised. He starts proving that he is who he claims to be. Luke 4.23, uh, the verse last week that we read, Jesus said, you will undoubtedly quote me this proverb, physician, heal yourself, meaning do miracles here in your hometown like those you did in Capernaum. And so we know from the Gospels that Jesus turned the water to wine and he did the miracles that he did in Capernaum before he taught in the synagogue. And so why has Luke reversed the order? And Luke doesn't mention what happened in Capernaum until our passage today we, we, or last week. Historically, we know those things happened before. But Luke is building this up so that Jesus is reading from the prophet Isaiah and saying what he's going to do before he does it. And then he goes out and does it. Does all these miracles and healings to prove what he's just read. Whereas historically, he does that stuff before he reads. But Luke is building this point that Jesus is proving that he's the Messiah. He fulfills his mission and demonstrates power and authority over unclean spirits as well as sickness and disease. And we see this in what follows after he heals the demoniac in verses 38 and 39. He goes to Peter's house. Peter's mother-in-law is sick with a high fever, a great fever. And, and Luke, it's interesting how Luke describes it because the Greek is literally in the grip of a major fever. And every one of those words is medical terminology. And Luke, as a doctor, knows exactly what he's talking about. In the grip of means that she was laid up in bed, that she wasn't standing, that she was completely laid out. And great fever means a high fever. They divided fevers into two classes, major and minor, and Luke is saying this is a major fever. And so, again, Jesus heals. And the, the visible, physical evidence that the fever has gone away and that she's better is that she, immediately she gets up and starts serving everyone in the house food. I mean, she goes from being strung out in bed, just completely wiped out, to rising up, standing up, which incidentally, the Greek word is anastasia, which is the word for resurrection. She rises up immediately and starts serving, which is such an indication of her heart and her spirit. Like, you, it's hard to put me down. The minute I get up, I'm going to be serving. I'm going to be doing things for others. Well, finally, at the end of our passage in verse 40, we read, as the sun went down that evening, people throughout the village brought sick family members to Jesus. No matter what their diseases were, the touch of his hand healed everyone. I'm thinking, this is at the very same time the most beautiful 
and freaky passage in Scripture. It's beautiful in the sense that Mark says the whole town was gathered at the door. And you're thinking, why did they delay until nighttime? Well, because it had been the Sabbath. And Sabbath ran from sunset to sunset. And so as the sun was setting again, Sabbath was now ending. And now they could work again. And so now they did the work that they were prevented from doing earlier in bringing sick family members and friends to Jesus. And so Mark says the whole town was literally gathered at the door. This beautiful scene of this labor of love of bringing friends and family to the one that they knew could do something about it. But at the same time, if you're a disciple, if I had been one of those disciples, I'm thinking, this is kind of creepy because it's dark now. And there's people wailing outside the door who are possessed, you know. And, and they're going to, you know, Jesus can deal with them one at a time. I mean, they're, they're not getting that he's God at this point. So they're looking at him as just a, you know, a friend with a lot of power. And they're thinking he's dealing with them one at a time. But between that, they might grab one of us and do some real harm, you know, or tear this house apart. And so it's kind of like, you know, a zombie movie where all these people are coming to the door. <laughs> and it, it's a beautiful and terrifying scene at the same time. But in the remaining hours of diminishing light, <clears throat> as people perform this labor of love of bringing people, Jesus heals. About the closest thing that I ever experienced to this was, I, I've been doing Mexico ministry for close to 40 years, and... Um, in the 90s, I uh, had a youth group. I was up in the Bay Area with a church, and we would go down to Mexicali and do ministry. And I th some of you have heard this story. We went to the same church every year, and we'd preach and do altar calls and stuff. And the, about the same 15, 30 people were always there, and the same three people would always raise their hand to receive the Lord, you know. And you couldn't go, no, you did that last year. I appreciate your intent, but, you know, you're already saved. Come on. And so we had this idea, you know, <clears throat> um, it, the church that we were in was kind of a charismatic church, and as you know, uh, most of Mexico is kind of Catholic, not really Pentecostal, and so we thought, maybe it's the church. Let's do the same service in the local park. And so we did the service in the local park, and about two to 300 people just showed up, wheeling people in wheelchairs and carrying people children all the way up to people in their 80s and 90s it was just unreal just this people were coming not for me or for my team they were coming because of the power and authority of God and his word and when I gave the altar call it was the most amazing altar call I've ever given in my life because some 70 to 80 people came forward all the way from children to adults and and the elderly it was just this amazing response and I've never seen the power of God at work like that in my life. And that's the closest to anything like this that I ever experienced. But notice back in our text that Luke carefully distinguishes between those who were sick and those who were demon-possessed. So that we know that the gospel writers didn't just lump everything into, oh, they're all demon-possessed. If you're sick, it means you have a demon. You know, there's no differentiation. But he, he does make that distinction. And then verse 41 he says that every time the demons came out at his command, they shouted, you are the Son of God. The text says, because they knew he was the Messiah. So the disciples hadn't got this yet. The religious leaders weren't getting it. 
Much of the people didn't understand it, but the demons understood very well. You're the Son of God. You're the Messiah. And they would scream that out, shout that out every time they came out. Huge. The question I have today is, have you ever acknowledged that Jesus is the Messiah? That he's the Savior sent by God? To acknowledge that, you pretty much have to acknowledge that there's sin in the world and that we're sinners in need of a Savior. <clears throat> but that's why he came, to remove sin, to take away sin. The last thing that I see here is that Jesus confirms that nothing is impossible with God. Jesus seems to me to be the perfect um, personification of Gabriel's message to Mary. When Mary said, how can all of this be that I, as a virgin, will give birth to a child? Gabriel basically says to her, nothing will be impossible with God. And Jesus is just living this out, just Everything he does, see, nothing's impossible with God. I, I imagine that every time Jesus did a miracle, healed somebody, preached, did all the amazing things he did, that his mother Mary was just kind of watching. And I, I, I wonder how many times Gabriel's words replayed in her mind, in her head, and she just kind of had that smile like, wow, yeah, nothing is impossible with God. I, I never thought I'd ever see this. And here's my son, you know. The joke is every Jewish mom thinks her son is God. <laughs> With Mary, she was right, you know. And every time he performed a miracle, she's probably just thinking, yeah, oh my goodness, nothing is impossible with God. Absolutely nothing. The question that I have for us today is, what, what's our impossibility? You know? For some of you, it's been cancer. It's been an illness that just seemed like, no way. You know, for others of us, maybe it's relational, something that we don't think will ever be restored or made right. You know, I, for every one of us, it's different. And some of us think our impossibility is trivial. Some of us think it's life altering. And yet the nice thing with God is he doesn't grade them on, you know, a scale and say, well, yours is insignificant compared to this person's. But he asks us to trust him with our impossibilities. You know, as we close and draw some application here, people often ask me and, and often wonder, why does Jesus always tell the demons to shut up? You know, they're doing his work for him. They're revealing to people that he's the Messiah. Why, why, why does he want to shut that down? Some have speculated that, well, <clears throat> he... Uh, he didn't want to raise a revolution. He didn't want all the revolutionary-minded people to kind of use him as their leader to overtake Rome and to, you know, cause this crisis to outburst uh, because he really wanted people to, to know that he was a suffering savior before the triumphant king. Others have speculated that, well, he wanted his works to speak for themselves. And I think personally that, you know, he's wanting to to help people, and to proclaim the kingdom of God. But at the same time, he's orchestrating his death. And if the truth of who his identity had really got out that first year, he would have been crucified in the first year. 
And so as God in human flesh, you're not only doing good, but you're thinking, no, my timeline is that in three years I will go to the cross. And you have to believe that Jesus was in control of everything all the way up to his final breath. As you read the crucifixion, it says, and he yielded up his spirit. He didn't die. The other criminals lasted way longer than him. And it wasn't just because he had been flogged with 39 you know, whips or, or lashes. It was because he was in control to the very end. He yielded up his spirit to God, and that's when he died. And so he's orchestrating all of this stuff. But I like what N.T. Wright says about this, the modern-day theologian N.T. Wright. He says that the hardest part about acknowledging the truth of Jesus is that you have to take it seriously. If we really acknowledge that Jesus is the Messiah, he is who he says he is, then it, it, it compels us to live a life that represents that. It compels us to take God seriously, and it changes the way that we live. Perhaps you're here today and you've never acknowledged Jesus is Messiah, and there's no greater acknowledgement in all of life than to understand that he is a Savior sent by God to address our issue with sin. Maybe you've acknowledged that many times and many years ago, and the question is, well then, are you living a life that reflects that? Either way, um, God has passages like this to help get our attention and help us to realize that he has provided a solution. And there is no human solution. This is the only solution. That's why Jesus went to the cross, because there was no other way. Let's pray.